The subject for this sermon this morning is a line from the beloved song which we've already sung. It's not just a part of a poem. It is a prayer and has been prayed by American patriots for many centuries. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. I've come to affirm this morning the importance of our understanding that freedom's holy light is holy and that America is free not because of our military might, but America is free because the light of the gospel has shined here in the hearts of men and women for many generations. The holy light of freedom is ablaze in America today because of providence. I'm referring, of course, to divine providence, not just some chance or happenstance. No one can understand America without a comprehension of her Christian heritage. You can't learn the history of this land apart from it. No signer of the Declaration of Independence was educated in a non-Christian school. If those men had been like many of us, interested in their own financial security above all else, the chances are that America would have never come into existence. These men already had financial security. They were cultured, sophisticated, and well-educated. But they were men in whose hearts freedom's holy light burned brightly. It was for that reason the Declaration of Independence came, contained their pledge to one another and the world of their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They weren't just a bunch of poor boys pledging what they didn't have. They were well-to-do men who loved freedom more than they loved their material possessions. Those who first came to settle this land were prompted by religious motivation. Their motive was to find a place where they could worship God according to the dictates of their consciences. They came to establish a land of freedom where every man would be free, free to worship God or not worship God. The early settlers came to these shores seeking first of all not national wealth but a society of freedom based on righteousness. Before landing at Plymouth, our pilgrim fathers inserted these words into the Mayflower Compact. We whose names are underwritten have undertaken for the glory of God to establish in Virginia the first colony for the advance of the Christian faith. And ten years later, other pilgrims said in the New England Federation Compact Agreement, we have all come into these parts of America with one and the same end, namely to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing which above all else has made and kept America strong is the ethical and spiritual quality of her people. If we ever lose our moral virility, and our spiritual debt, we are gone, and no amount of scientific skill or military prowess can put us back on our feet again. Mr. Charles Steinmetz was not a preacher. He was a scientist and for 30 years was chief engineer of General Electric. In the last year of his life, Mr. Steinmetz said, our forefathers knew the power of prayer, the importance of Sabbath observance, and the need of family and public worship to this America owes its prosperity and growth. 
John Wycliffe, in the first edition of his Bible, translated into English in the 14th century, wrote these words. This Bible is translated and shall make possible government of the people and by the people and for the people. Does that have a familiar ring? Have you heard that before? Of course, you heard it in, in the Lincoln Gettysburg Address. For Abraham Lincoln knew the Bible and its history. And for that reason, Abraham Lincoln became known as the great emancipator because he knew that under God, no man should ever serve in bondage to another human being. No teacher of history can adequately teach American history apart from our deeply rooted Christian faith and values. I'm not saying that history teachers ought to proclaim and promote Christianity, but I am saying that history teachers are not teaching American history when they fail to bring out our debt to our Christian heritage and for the greatness we enjoy today. In 1774, Thomas Jefferson wrote a pamphlet in which he contested the right of the British Parliament to enact restrictive legislation against the colonies in America. He contended that Britain had no right to infringe upon the human freedoms of those and had an appeal to a higher law than the law of Parliament. This man of wisdom and spiritual commitment wrote, quote, the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. The hand of force may destroy, but can never disjoin these two. The same God who made us, made us to be free. Ruthless tyranny may be able to destroy both life and liberty, but the two can never be separated, for to separate one from the other robs the other of its viability. Jefferson was both a great Christian and a great patriot, and recognize that loyalty to one's nation when he asked, can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed the conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? I guarantee on the basis of history that where this conviction no longer exists, those liberties will not long endure. Freedom has come at a great price. Freedom is never free. This significantly important principle was clearly at work during those painful years in the mid-1700s when the old order was giving way to the new. When the time of separation was near, the beloved patriots such as John Adams understood the cost of liberty and on July the 4th, 1776, the day the Declaration of Independence was formally adopted and signed, Adams said in an address before the Continental Congress, quote, Live or die, sink or swim, survive or perish. I am committed to this declaration of independence. I am committed, and if God wills it, I am ready to die that this nation may be free. Because of that declaration, men equipped with little more than hunting knives went out to battle the greatest nation of the world. By human valor and sacrifice, they won the freedom that we enjoy. Freedom is never free. It is interesting to note the fate of those 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Nine of them died in the Revolutionary War. Five were captured by the British as traitors and were tortured before they died. Twelve of these men had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost sons in the war. 
Carter Braxton of Virginia, who was a wealthy planter and trader, saw his merchant ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his remaining possessions and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Vandals and soldiers are both looted the properties of El Reclimer, Halton, Walton, Hall, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. When his home was taken by General Cornwallis of the British Army at the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson, Jr. quietly turned to General George Washington and urged him to open fire on his home. Fire commenced, his home was completely destroyed, and he died in bankruptcy. The British arrested the wife of Francis Lewis, and she died in prison. John Hart was driven from the deathbed of his wife, along with his 13 children who fled in terror for their lives. In support of the Declaration of Independence, these 56 men pledged three things, their fortunes, their lives, and their sacred honor. Most of them lost the first two, but not one of them lost the last. The errant ways of men had capitalized upon the slavery system of the South by 1861. Citizens had concocted a method through which freedom and the land were extended to some, but not to all. The following years of sectional strife, uh, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation to set the slaves free. The result was a bloody civil war. Soon father fought against, fought against son and brother fought against brother. A scarred trail of blood and devastation was carved all over this nation because freedom had been threatened. The cost of this nation was best expressed in a letter written by President Lincoln to Mrs. Bixby of Boston. He said, listen, I've been shown files of the War Department, the statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts, that you are the mother of five sons who died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any work of mine to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Freedom is never free. And some of you have experienced world, world wars across Europe. Men died there by the thousands. One dear lady, Miss Bess Swenson, gave three sons to the war in Europe and said, Freedom is never free, people. It is bought by blood, the blood of my own sons. And my prayer to God is that the people who say better red than dead, the people who sew the flag to the seat of their pants might hear sweet Bess Swinson say, freedom is never free. It is bought with blood. We pay freedom a dear price by humbly admitting that liberty is not ours to own or create. We are the recipients of it. We pay freedom's dear price when we surrender personal indulgences for the greater good of the community. We pay freedom's dear price when we realize that freedom is not free, it costs dearly. It costs us to invest ourselves through love to be servants of one another. Freedom's holy light burns today because men and women have paid the price of freedom. But freedom's holy light continues through preparedness. The question often comes, is it Christian for a nation like ours to be armed to the teeth and prepared for war? 
someone else has asked, wasn't Jesus a pacifist expecting us to follow such a pattern? The fact of the matter is Jesus Christ died rather than surrender to evil. Never forget that. He gave his life rather than to surrender to the evil machinations of men. He revealed that there are things worth dying for. He did not hesitate to sacrifice his life in order to establish the possibility of peace between man and his maker, between man and his fellows. It is true that Jesus said, all who live by the sword shall perish by the sword. But taken in the context of the entire New Testament, that can hardly mean there is no place for the sword in the affairs of men and nations. I believe that Jesus was talking about an aggressive spirit that, that takes the sword to conquer and bring unto dominion those who live by the sword. That is, those who are living to fight and to gain dominance over someone else. If there's no place for the sword among men and nations, stability of world peace would diminish alarmingly. If we were to fo follow the line of thinking that says Jesus was a pacifist, which I believe is untrue, that would mean that we would disarm all our police forces and law enforcement agencies and it would mean that you and I as Christians would have to refuse to protect our own families and our homes. Let me give us another verse to think about. Luke 22:36 reveals this truth from the lips of Jesus. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. That's in the Bible too. It is my belief that this was a design for defense and not offense. Surely Jesus was opposed to war. Absolutely Jesus was opposed to killing and to bloodshed. But it is also clearly revealed in the pages of the New Testament that our Lord Jesus taught the right of defense in regard to one's persons, to one's person, home, and nation. Let it be affirmed that freedom's holy light stands in aggression, in, in opposition to an aggressive warlike spirit based on the desire to conquer and dominate. But thank God, as of today, America has never engaged in such war. It has never been our purpose to dominate or conquer the world. Every war that we've ever been engaged in, including the one in Southeast Asia, has been for the purpose of securing liberty, freedom, and democracy for those who are in danger of being enslaved. The desire or the ambition for national greatness or world dominance are foreign to the Christian faith. But the willingness to die for one's freedom for oneself and for other people is wholly consistent with the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. That's why he died. He died to make men free. Since our generation is responsible now for freedom's holy light, we have to give attention to the future, and that is to provision. We've talked about providence and, and, and the price of freedom and preparedness. What about our provision for the future? Listen to me. We are faced with a question of whether we will settle for dictatorial tyranny or pay the price of liberty and keep the light burning. You and I will make that choice. Daniel Webster said, God grants liberty only to those who love it and who are always ready to guard and defend it. Were it not for armed resistance in the past and the willingness on the part of patriots to give their lives, there would not be a square foot of free land in this world today. 
Many who died and are buried on foreign soil gave their lives not because they were committed to war and killing, but because they were committed to freedom and democracy. Thank God for them. Across this century, many of you here and who are watching on television and listening on the radio have served our nation in the uniform of your country. Not because you were a warmonger, but because you were a lover of freedom. Veterans of wars in this generation bear testimony to this fact. And every American is the beneficiary of the freedoms they have secured at the price of blood. Some time ago, an article appeared in a West Coast newspaper telling of the granddaughter of a Methodist bishop who was taken on her first visit to see the wonders of New York City. The most impressive experience for this little girl was her trip to, to the Statue of Liberty. She remembered vividly their long climb up the steps on the inside of that famous figure. That night after her visit, the little girl seemed troubled. When her father asked her what her trouble was, she replied, I'm thinking of that lady with the lamp standing out there all alone. She must get awfully tired. Don't you think someone ought to help her hold up that lamp? That little girl asked a question that faces every American. Are you one of those who will be willing to help hold up the lamp? This is the task of every true American. Patriots in the present must be loyal to our God and preserve those principles which He established upon which America has been built and which, has made our land, which have made our land great. We cannot all represent our country in diplomatic dialogue. We do not have the knowledge or the skill which that specialized service requires. We cannot all split the atom or devise a more powerful weapon or pilot a jet bomber or walk on the moon. Maybe we can't even sing the national anthem. An editorial writer back in the 30s commented that the Star Spangled Banner was beyond the vocal range of patriots. But all of us, by the grace of God, can be good people. We can work for righteousness. We can vote for it. We can demand of those in authority over us a brand of justice, honor, and integrity which will gain the trust and confidence of all the races and peoples of this world. This is the higher patriotism. God in His providence has given America a position of world leadership. Never has a nation had a greater opportunity of responsibility than we have now and we cannot be adequate for it unless we use the language that's in the scout oath, that we be physically strong, mentally awake, and above all, morally straight. There is one last word to say about America, and that is that in America we have pride. Someone expressed the pride that we feel in America in this little poem. If you're proud to be an American, brand new or native born, then you get a certain feeling each time you greet the morn. The glory of her past seems to live in you today. Then you're proud to be an American and that feeling's here to stay. I'm proud to be an American. It's where I choose to live. From her mountains to her valleys, she has so much to give. The mighty western prairie, the tall and stately pine, yes, I'm proud to be an American. 
and I'm proud to call her mine. There's not another place I'd rather call my own. This land of opportunity I love, the kind where freedom's flag is flown, the good old USA is for me. If you're proud to be an American, help, her keep, help keep her number one. When you see her flag a-flying, waving with its colors in the sun, with 50 stars a-shining against a field of blue, then you're proud to be an American. And I'm proud to be one too. There's not a place, another place I'd rather call my own. This land of opportunity I love. The kind of life where freedom's flag is flown. The good old USA is for me. If you're proud to be an American, stand up and clap your hands from the youngest to the oldest. Let all Americans stand. The rhythm of the sound sends a message that is true. You're proud to be an American, and I'm proud to be one too. It's easy to wave the flag and to boast of America's strength and accomplishments, but this is a serious time and no time for empty platitudes and noisy patriotic oratory. It's rather a time for national self-examination and a time for solemn rededication to the will and the way of a righteous God. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and I'm going to offer an invitation. Listen, an invitation not just to say I will you know, be patriotic, but an invitation for people to give their lives to Jesus Christ, to be free indeed. An invitation for people to commit themselves to the righteous God totally, their homes, their work, their lives. An invitation for people to come on this good day to a free place, a free church where we worship in freedom to say, I want to join this church and I want to join in that which supports freedom. Would you stand with me and would you come?